this morning. Uh, we'll be in Luke chapter 3, or you can follow along on version. And uh, while you're getting there, I've heard a lot of, uh, a lot of similar uh, noises, uh, a lot of sniffling, um, some coughing. Uh, I understand there's a lot of sickness going around, and uh, I apologize in advance. I've been battling a cold and sore throat and tried to practice through notes yesterday and had to stop because it was coughing and all that stuff. So I have definitely been praying that the Holy Spirit would uh, be present this morning, but I think we're all kind of in the same boat. I think it had something to do with, you know, 30 degree weather, then 60 degree weather, and now minus zero, minus two, whatever uh, weather it is outside. And uh, but we'll we'll get through it. So uh, we're in Luke chapter three this morning, and we find ourselves in Luke chapter three, kind of in a transition period. Up to this point, we've seen uh, you know promises of a Messiah to come. Uh, a forerunner to come before the Messiah. We've seen uh, John born into this world. We've seen the Messiah, Jesus Christ, born into the world. We've seen uh, temple visits and um, just some uh, prophetic words about who the Messiah would be. Last week, we see Jesus at age 12 in the temple, and we see this first kind of sign of his divine knowledge of who he is, his divinity. Uh, didn't you know I would be in my father's house? He is the son of God with his people, uh, with his father. And, of course, his parents didn't really fully understand what he was saying. But uh, we know that that's who Jesus is. He is the son of God. He is the son of God. But we also saw a little bit of his human side and the fact that he was willing to submit to his parents, to authority. And we kind of have that... You know, we don't kind of we have that same responsibility to submit to authority that God has placed in that position. So much as we also remember that we are called to be holy, and so much as the authority try to tell us, "Hey, you are to do this or that," we must remember to be holy in what we do. And so we find ourselves in this transition period, um, and now we see John the Baptist come in. He comes into the scene with a message that was hard then, and I think it's just as hard now. He preaches a message of repentance, and we struggle with that. That word repentance, what that means to repent, we struggle with that. Thomas Watson once said, Many think they repent when it is not the offense but the penalty that troubles them. We repent for specific reasons, not because of what we've done, but because of what we're trying to avoid. Curtis Hudson once said, There is no doubt that all men from Adam on have had to repent in order to have a right relationship with God. The importance of repentance is demonstrated by the fact that men of every biblical age preached it. There is an important, uh, it's an important thing that we do in repentance. And I think as we go through... Luke chapter 3, we'll see just how important it is. So we're going to start in verses 1 and 2. And it says, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Echira and Trachonitis, 
and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to the son of Zechariah, to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Luke here starts this account of John a little bit different than the other Gospels do. We see in the other Gospels, it just kind of John pops into the scene. Here in Luke, Luke gives us kind of a rundown on who's in the position of authority at this time, who are in those positions, those uh, political positions at the time. And he gives us a list of people. Uh, First, he starts with Tiberius Caesar. We know that before this, Caesar Augustus was the emperor, uh, and he was seen by many to be a great ruler. He was the kind of the the first emperor, the, the major emperor of the nation of Rome. But then we get Tiberius, and while, you know, the previous Caesar was known for being a great ruler, Tiberius was known for being a ruler who really brought extreme severity and cruelty to the nation of Rome. Then we see Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate is governor of Judea from AD 26 to 36, and when we get uh, later on in the book of Acts, we'll talk more about him. Then there's Herod. And this Herod is Herod Antipas. He's the son of Herod the Great. We also see Philip, who, like Herod Antipas, was also a son of Herod the Great. And it says that he was a tetriarch. And a tetriarch was one who would rule over part of Palestine, which at that point was divided into four parts. Uh, We also see Licinius. And there's really nothing in historical records about who Licinius was. And then there were two high priests. First was Annas, and Annas held the office of high priest from 87 to 15, but he appears to be in power much longer afterwards. And then there's Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the one who was officially designated high priest by the Roman government. He served from 818 to 36. He was the fourth to be appointed after Annas, but the people still looked to Annas for leadership. He was really seen as the high priest and was kind of put in a position of high priest for life, if you will. And it's during this time where we have this emperor and this governor and these different Herods and these two high priests that we see the word of God appear to none of these men. The, the word of God does not appear to the Herods. It doesn't appear to Pilate. It doesn't appear to the emperor. It doesn't appear to the high priest. It appears to John, this man who is in the wilderness, this prophet from the wilderness. You know, up to this point, there had been no prophetic voice in the nation of Israel for years, 400 years uh, at that. But now the time has come for him to come and proclaim this very important message. We see God's timing working exactly the way he has it planned and how he has it set. But then we move into verse 3. And it says, And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And so John comes onto the scene, and he comes proclaiming a message, a message of baptism, of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
we see that he's in the region of the Jordan. This is really near the banks of the Jordan, near Bethany. It tells us this in John chapter 1, verse 28. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. And here we see John doing what he is called to do. He is announcing the arrival of the kingdom. That was his job, the forerunner for the Messiah, to announce the coming kingdom. Matthew chapter 3, 1 and 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And to prepare for the kingdom, John's proclaiming this message, this message of baptism for the repentance and forgiveness of sins. And that's what people are doing. They're coming out, they're repenting of their sins, and they are getting baptized. Matthew chapter 3, 5 through 6. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And so let's take a minute and talk about John's baptism. Because people have asked in the past, what is the difference between John's baptism and Christian baptism? Well, John's baptism really was a precursor to Christian baptism. In Acts chapter 19, we see this story play out in Ephesus where some people had been baptized into John's baptism. And uh, Paul is asking them, who are you baptized by? And uh, they talk about this in Acts 19, 1 through 5. It says, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And you see, both of these baptisms, they did have uh, one very important thing in common. They were both baptisms of repentance and forgiveness of sins. We see that in Acts 2.38. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But while they have this in common... There is a difference between the two. As Acts 19 points out, John's baptism was one that was a uh, precursor, one that came before. It was this, uh, you know, baptism of, you know, making their hearts ready for the coming Messiah, one that was of a need for forgiveness. Christ's baptism is one of the finished work, if you will, the, the one who is without sin, dying on the cross, blood shed for us that, that washes us, the complete work of his redemption. And we'll talk a little bit more about you know, Christ's baptism here in just a bit. And in a way, John's baptism, it really functioned like the Old Testament sacrificial system uh, for the forgiveness of sin. And we see that just like us, they were justified by their faith. Galatians 3, 1 through 6. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works or of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Or, as Mark Moore puts it, the only difference is that we look backwards to the cross and they looked forward to it. 
one more thing on this baptism. You see, baptism was nothing new to the Jewish people. Jews would baptize Gentiles who wanted to become Jewish. But here's the thing about those baptisms. Those baptisms were really just about ritual cleansing rather than repentance. And it was often seen as, you know, about being conformed religiously. John was concerned with the inner man while the Jewish baptism was concerned with the outer man. And here's the thing. John is preaching to a group of Jews as well as Gentiles, but also to a group of Jews who believe that they themselves were already pure. There was nothing wrong with them. They didn't need to be baptized. They didn't need to repent. Everything was good in them. You know, so I was talking to Nate this week about our text, and he kept bringing up, and he brought it up on Wednesday night. And I just think it's always an awesome thing when God is working and, you know, two people are thinking the exact same thing. And we were both like, oh, man, this is exactly what we're talking about. But he brought up, can you imagine how embarrassed the Jews might have been listening to what John had to say? how offended they must have been. And I think that's exactly probably how they were. How dare you come out here telling us that we need to do this? We'll talk more about that actually here in a minute. But then we see here this quote from Isaiah. And this quote is from Isaiah chapter 40. All the synoptic gospels quote Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3. Luke actually adds verses 4 and 5 as well. But Mark's gospel starts with a quote from Malachi 3.1 which says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And as we see, this really points to Elijah in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day the Lord comes. And we see John taking on a similar role to the prophet Elijah. That was his task, right? That's what's said in the beginning of Luke, that he would take on that similar role of the prophet Elijah, both in message and appearance. In Luke one seventeen, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. In Matthew 3, 4, now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Second Kings 1.8, they answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. I remember that, uh, those clothes very well because I uh, had a good friend of mine, youth pastor, preach on this. And uh, I just happened to be there the one week he was preaching on it on a Wednesday. And he goes, guess what? I don't have any locust, but I do have grasshoppers. And... Uh, he called up some of the students, and he goes, I need an adult, and just my luck, who happens to be the one that gets called up there? And so I did have to eat a grasshopper dipped in honey, and it wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. No, I'm kidding. It wasn't, it wasn't good. It wasn't good. But that was the appearance that he came in, and he would come in the same, with the same task, with the same purpose, with the same mission. And it's fitting that John was in the lower Jordan region because it's here where we see Elijah actually spend his last days in Second Kings chapter 2. But what does this mean, this Isaiah passage? What does this mean? Well, when a king would go and travel out in the desert... Workmen would go out before the king and they would clear up any debris and they would smooth out the road so that the trip would be made easier. It's said that if there were curves in the road, they would actually go and straighten curves so that they could go as smooth and
switch to this. Nope. Never mind. We're just going to turn this off. Technology. Love it. So they would go out, they would straighten everything up. That's what they would do as a precursor for a king coming out into the desert. And that's exactly what John's job was to do, to go out, to straighten out the road, to straighten the path for the Messiah that was to come. His message that he proclaimed would straighten and smooth up the path for the Messiah to come. It would make people more ready to hear the message of the Messiah. And I love how Warren Wiersbe describes Israel here. He says, spiritually speaking, the nation of Israel was living in a wilderness of unbelief, and the roads to spiritual reality were twisted in disrepair. The corruption of the priesthood, instead of one, there were two high priests, and the legalistic hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees had weakened the nation spiritually. The people desperately needed to hear a voice from God, and John was that faithful voice. And so he has come to be a forerunner to prepare people's hearts for the coming Messiah. And then we go into verse 7. It says, He said, Therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid in the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Luke shows us talking, or shows John talking here to the crowds, and his words are sharp. They're not easy words to hear, they are sharp words. Luke's gospel appears to be showing John speaking to the crowd as a whole, but when you look over at Matthew chapter 3, it seems to pinpoint a specific group of people that John is talking to. Matthew 3, 7, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Over in Matthew, we see Jesus refer to the religious leaders as a brood of vipers. Jesus makes us quote a few times, Matthew twelve thirty four. you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In Matthew twenty three thirty three, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? You see, a viper is venomous and they're devious. John is calling the religious leaders that their poison, their teaching, their self-righteousness is poison and it's filled with unbelief. Look at how Jesus would describe the scribes and Pharisees in John eight forty four. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And John tells the people, wrath is coming. And what they need to do is they need to show the fruit of repentance. The word for repent is one that means a change of mind. The Greek concept of mind included the thoughts, but also the will. The mind controlled thoughts and behavior. And so, in other words, true repentance should bring about a change in behavior. 
And that's the importance of repentance. It's important that we have a heart of repentance each and every day. We have a practice of repentance. Jesus proclaimed the need for repentance. Luke 13, 3, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In the book of Acts, we see this call to repent. Acts 17, 30 through 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And you see, many don't like the idea of repentance. Look at the Jewish leaders. They felt they had nothing to repent for. They were perfect. They were pure. They had no things that they needed to repent for. Some have that view today. Like, we struggle with this. We don't want to repent because we try to pretend that we've done nothing wrong. We've not made any mistakes. We've done nothing wrong. Or we say things like, I don't need to repent. I've already been forgiven. He already knows I don't need to repent. Owen Feltham says it like this, All men will be Peters in their bragging tongue, and most men will be Peters in their base denial, but few men will be Peters in their quick repentance. You see, we are all called to confess and repent. And here's the good news. We know that if we do that, that he is just in how he deals with our sins. 1 John 1, nine. if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But that's the thing. If you are truly repentant, your life should show that. It should be evident in what you do. You should be living a life where it seems you have a change of mind, a change of desires, a change of how you live. It should be noticeable. And then John lets the people know something important. They can't count on their traditions or their birthright or the fact that they come from Abraham as they were in the habit of doing. We're from the nation of Israel. We're God's nation. We're from Abraham. There's, you know, we're fine. But you see, none of that mattered. The old saying is, it's not what you know, but who you know. Well, that doesn't work here. Abraham's true children would come through faith, through the promise of God, not by their fleshly ancestry. You know, he tells them, we could ra- God could raise up these stones right now to be children of Abraham. And John tells him a hard truth. You better repent because the time is near and the axe is ready to chop down the trees that are not producing fruit. What's important here to know is when he tells them this, John is using present tense, not future. The immediacy, the immediacy of this is now. And Jesus would later echo what John is saying here. But then we go into verse 10. It says, and the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. So, you know, John was just talking about keeping fruit and repentance. Then we see these groups of people come and ask John the same question three times. What then shall we do? And this is in correlation to those fruits of repentance. First, it's the crowd. 
and they come to him and say, what should we do? And John tells him, if you had two tunics, to give one to someone who's in need. You know, give them that extra tunic and do the same with food. If you have an extra one, that is one for you to give away. If you have extra food, give it away. What he's saying here is this idea, idea to share what is in need, basic benevolence. One of the signs that we have to show true repentance here that is given to the crowds is how you help those who are in need. And this is important. It's important for us to help those who are in need. It tells us this biblically. 2 Corinthians eight thirteen through 15. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. James chapter 2, 15 through 17. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So then the tax collectors ask him that same question. What are we to do? And he tells them, Go and collect what is needed, but nothing more than what you're authorized. You see, tax collectors were known for being dishonest and taking more than what was authorized and keeping some of it for themselves because they worked on commission. They were some of the most despised people in Israel. And John is telling them to be honest in what they do. To be honest with others is biblical and it's part of having integrity. Proverbs eleven thirty three. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. Then it's the soldiers who ask. And John tells them, do not extort money and be content with your wages. They were despised for extorting money and threatening people and lying about people. And this could mean temple guards here. It could mean military who helped the tax collectors. Maybe it was Herod Antipas' troops. It doesn't tell us. But here's the thing, a Roman soldier would not make good money because of food, clothing, arms were all deducted from their paycheck and they made about 225 denarii a year. One denarii was a day's wage. But John is telling that's not an excuse to rob people. They're to be content with what they have. Again, we point back to Proverbs 11, being a person of integrity. How often it's sad that you see people in corporations arrested for blackmail, lying, stealing, cheating from the business they run. But these things should show fruit and repentance. Then in verse 15, it says, As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. People start to wonder who is this guy? Is this guy the Messiah? They'd been hoping for a Messiah who would be king, who would be militant, who would take them out from under Rome. And John is popular. People are going out to hear what he has to say and see what he's doing. And because of this, people are coming to him, and it's got people asking, is this the guy? Is this the Messiah who had been promised? Is he the one who would cause an uprising? Is this him? John's reply, nope, nope. 
not me. And he tells him, I came baptizing with water. His was an outward baptism. But there is one to come whose sandals he is unworthy to untie. Somebody greater, somebody mightier is coming than him. This was Christ the Messiah who was getting ready to come onto the scene. And he says, this coming Messiah will baptize with the Spirit and with fire. So let's break that down a little bit. The baptism of the Spirit. You see, one thing that John's baptism could not do is give people the Holy Spirit. But the Messiah who was coming, his baptism would be one of the Spirit. We see the full effect of this really in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, verse 5, they're promised that it was coming. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. In Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, on the day of Pentecost, it says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to be on them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Look over Acts, verse, or Acts chapter 11, verse 15 through 17. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? See, I think this is very, is very important what John is saying here. For those who believe through faith and accept Jesus as their Savior, they receive the Holy Spirit. And this is important because, for starters, he is the seal of our salvation and guarantee of our inheritance. First, I'll say he is a he, not a it or a thing or whatever, as we kind of like to mislabel the Holy Spirit. He is the seal of our salvation and guarantee of our inheritance. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And you see, all who believe in him will drink of the same spirit. 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Matter of fact, I would go so far to say, without the Spirit, we do not belong to him. Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, and anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Romans eight fourteen, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And I would add, we cannot know him or even fully believe in him without the Spirit. 1 Corinthians twelve three. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever said Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. John 3, 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so here's the question I would ask when it comes to the Spirit. Do we submit to the Spirit and allow him to work in our lives? In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, it says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Paul is saying when a person is drunk, they are influenced by the wine that they drink. Instead, be influenced by the Spirit. Or, the question is, do we refuse to listen to the Spirit? Do we refuse to listen to the Spirit? Do we quench the Spirit? 
In Acts 7.51, it says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. And 1 Thessalonians 5.19, Do not quench the Spirit. Or the question is, are we seeking continually to be filled with the Spirit? One more thing. People often ask, how do I know I'm filled with the Spirit? Well, in Galatians chapter 5, right after the acts of sinful nature, Paul gives us this in verses 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So he talks about the baptism of the Spirit, then he talks about the baptism of fire. And I think this baptism of fire, I think what he's talking about here is judgment. And I say that because what we read in verse 17, his winnowing fork is at hand. I love how R.C. Sproul's explains verse 17, saying the winnowing fork was the instrument used by farmers in the ancient world to divide the chaff from the wheat. The process was a simple one. The good kernels of wheat weighed more than the chaff, so the farmer would pile the wheat and chaff together on the threshing floor. And then, using this long fork-like tool, he would throw it all up in the air, and just the general movements of the air currents would be enough to do their job of separation for him, as the lighter chaff would ride the air currents and be carried off to the side. Remember how John had used the image of the woodcutter, saying that the Messiah is as close as an axe laid on the root of the tree? Now he carries the message further with the image of the farmer who isn't just thinking about coming into the threshing floor to divide the wheat from the chaff. Instead, the winnowing fork is in his hand. The moment of decision is now. And so it's this message that John is preaching. The time is now to repent. It's not in the future. It's not years from now. It's now. It's right now. And we see this idea expressed in Scripture that the Messiah would do the purifying work of judgment. Malachi chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. The message is clear. Repent, for the kingdom is near. And we see John continues to preach the good news to the people. You look over in verse 18. So with many, with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added to them, or added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. He goes and he preaches to Herod. He reproves Herod. That means to express disapproval to Herod the Tetrarch. Herod was married to his brother's wife, which in the eyes of the Jew, that was considered both adultery and incest. And he preaches to him for many things, and he ends up getting thrown in jail. As I was reading that, I think the truth is there's a cost for preaching the truth. The world does not want to hear the truth because it's counterculture to the lifestyle they want to live. Sometimes to speak the truth will put us in the crosshairs of the world, but we are to speak the truth. We are to speak what we know is true. Just know there's a cost to preaching the truth. The world isn't going to want to hear what you have to say. They're not going to like what you have to say because that's not how they want to live. But we are to preach the truth no matter what. Then it says in verse 21, 
Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And then here at the end of our text this morning, we see an important event take place, the baptism of Jesus. So important, all four Gospels mention this moment. And so this leads everyone to ask the question, why must a sinless Savior be baptized? If he's without sin, why does he need to be baptized? Well, I think there were many important reasons for this. One, it shows Jesus being obedient to God's plan. Two, it identifies Jesus as the Son of God, which we'll talk about here in just a bit. John 1, 31 through 34, you can read that for more on that. Three, it sets an example for us to follow. If Jesus was baptized, if the apostles spoke of the importance of Christian baptism, it should be important for us, as long as our heart is in the right place. But I think Jesus gives us the answer in Matthew. In Matthew 3, 15, Matthew tells us that at first John refuses to comply, saying, I should be baptized by you. It should be the other way around. And Jesus responds by telling him it's to fulfill all righteousness. He fulfilled the law of God in every facet. As the one who would bear our sins, he had to enter into the debt we owe. He had to enter into our sin. I like how Mark Moore describes this. He says, yet Jesus was the sinless son of God. How do we solve this paradox? For Westerners, repentance is invariably individualistic. For Easterners, however, who live in community, the leader of a group of people can, in fact, repent on behalf of his followers. Daniel, Nehemiah, Moses, and Jeremiah all did this. They prayed, wept, fasted, and repented for sins they had not personally committed. But as leaders of God's people, they took responsibility for the community's sins. This appears to be here or this appears to be what is going on here. Jesus stands as the personification of Israel, as the messianic representation of God's people. As such, he has the right and responsibility to repent on behalf of the wayward nation. If this is true, then Jesus' baptism truly does inaugurate his ministry, fulfill all righteousness, and foreshadow his destiny at Calvary. And we see Jesus here doing something that he tends to do a lot of in big occasions, big moments in his life. He's praying. And as he's praying, the sky is ripped open. I love that, that language. It's ripped open. The word here in Greek means torn asunder. The sky was torn asunder, and the Holy Spirit descends upon him as a dove. Now, I know people have talked about this. I, I don't believe this is Jesus' first time he's receiving the Holy Spirit. I think everything up to this point in his birth and his life, he has had the Holy Spirit there with him. But I think it's really the marking of the start of Jesus' earthly ministry. And the dove is a symbol of peace and freedom from judgment, which I think is a good connection when you think of the fact that Jesus would bring such peace and freedom to his people. And then we hear God speak out of heaven. Three times this happens, each time validating the Son. You see it here. We see it in Luke 9.35 at the Mount of Transfiguration. And in John 12.28 after the triumphal entry, God was telling the people who Jesus was and that they needed to listen to him. You see, I, I think there's a lot here in this text. But I think it all comes down to this very important message, repent. 
John's message is centered on this, the need for people to repent for the kingdom is near. And we know the truth. We know that this message is just as important for us today as it was for them back then. The need for repentance, for confession, to put our faith in Jesus Christ and repent of our sins each and every day. To repent of those sins, to turn and walk away in the other direction from those sins. And here's the thing. So many people want to put this off. I have all the time in the world to repent. I have all the time in the world to confess. I have all the time in the world to put my faith in Christ. But for now, I'm going to live the way I want to live. I'm going to do what I want to do. And maybe, just maybe, when the time is right, I will confess, I'll repent. But we know that this is simply not true. Proverbs 27.1, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. James 4, 13 through 15, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Augustine once said, God has promised forgiveness to your repentance, but he has not promised tomorrow to your procrastination. You see, John's message was one of urgency, and we need to realize that we need to have that same urgency today. And so I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And as they come up, maybe you're here this morning, and you've been procrastinating. Maybe you've not put your faith in him. Maybe you have not decided to follow after him. If that's the case, and that's you this morning, please do not leave here without talking to me, to Cody, the elders. We'd love to talk with you. Or maybe you just have some issues in your life that you've been holding on to, some sin issues, some things that have been keeping you from truly turning around and walking away. Maybe you've got some issues that have not been repented of and some things you've been holding on to. And if that's you this morning, you can spend some time right where you are praying in your chair or you can come up here. I'd love to pray with you. But man, we need to have that same urgency, that need to repent each and every day. We are called to repent, to turn around and walk away from those sins. And yes, we stumble, we fall short of the glory of God, and yet we are called still each and every day to repent. And so if that's you this morning, if you need to talk about any of those things, I pray that you would do so as we stand together this morning and we sing together.